0: You're listening to Defending the Biblical Roots of Christianity An apologetics and theology podcast hosted by Professor R.L. Solberg For more information about our ministry, visit thebiblicalroots.org You are joining us at uh, episode 8 out of an 11-part mini-series where we're looking at and examining the Jewish-Christian relations in the early church— which, of course, is the same subject that I look at in my book Divergence. Uh, and this mini-series is really aimed at being a companion to that book. You certainly don't need to own the book in order to enjoy this series. So welcome back. If you've already been with us, you know that we, ha- we are looking at the historical relation between Jews and Christians in sort of three stages. So stage one is looking at the New Testament, and today we're in the middle of stage two, which is looking at the early Christian writings. Now, last time last episode, we looked at two uh, two early—well, one teaching and one early writing. So we looked at Marcionism, and we looked at Justin Martyr's long, quite long writing called Dialogue with Trifo. Now, Dialogue with Trifo, according to Jewish scholar Shay Cohen, is one of the two most anti-Jewish uh, writings from the second century. And we're going to look at the other writing that he mentioned. And when I got into the book and started looking through a lot of early Christian writings, I actually wasn't aware of this next writing until I came across uh, Shay Cohen's writing about it. So I decided, okay, well, if this is a Jewish guy and he feels this is an anti-Jewish writing, I want to take a look at it. The second writing we're, we're going to be looking at is called On the Pasha. And the word Pasha is, it means the Passover, the Easter. So it's called On the Pascha and it's again it's a second second century writing by a, a guy named Melito. And then the other thing we're going to look at during this episode is a third century writing from Cyprian, another, you know, well-known church father. And he wrote something called Three Books of Testimonies Against Jews. So we're going to look at both of those today and try to move the ball forward a little bit as we investigate these early Christian Jewish relations. <music> So, we'll start with On the Pasha. So, this is something that was written around the same time as Justin's dialogue, which we looked at in the last episode. And it was written by a man named Melito of Sarda. But of course, this is a a lesser known work and it's an entirely different sort of literature from Justin's work. This writing is actually believed to be a sermon intended for a Christian audience during the Paschal or the Passover slash Easter season. And by the way, if you're interested in reading this entire sermon by Melito, I've got the whole thing printed out in the appendix of my book Divergence. And you can find about, find out more about that at divergencebook.com. So Melito was what we call a quarto decimon, and this gets us into this whole historical era where we had a divergence among the early Christian church about when Easter should be celebrated. So, quartodecimens, and that, that word comes from the Latin quartus decimus, which means the 14th. So, this group of Christians believed that, that we should be celebrating the resurrection on the Jewish date of the 14th of Nisan. So, Nisan is the Jewish month, and this was the date, the annual date for the Jewish Passover. So, like modern-day Christmas, uh, Easter could fall on any day of the week, Now, other Christians thought that it would be more appropriate to celebrate Easter on the Sunday, uh, the first day of the week, which is the day of the week that, of course, Jesus' tomb was found empty. And so they began celebrating Easter every Sunday after the Paschal Moon. And so there became this uh, divergence among the Christian world, which we'll see play out as we continue our look, and it kind of comes to a head at the Council of Nicaea, which is stage three of our investigation. But for purposes of today, Melito was a quarto deciman. He celebrated the resurrection on the Jewish date of Passover, uh, which is why he calls it on the Pasha, on the Passover. So this particular writing is, shows Melito recounting the Easter story by picking up on the idea that was introduced by, well, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and by John in John 1, that uh, that Jesus was the unblemished Passover lamb whose sacrifice brought forgiveness and salvation to his people. So this, this work is really an examination of the mystery of the Passover. And it was written around the year 170. So this this would be about, what, 140 years or so after Christ. So let me read a few lines from the introduction here where Melito kind of sets out the mystery that he's going to be looking at. It says this, quote, Therefore, understand this, O beloved, the mystery of the Passover is new and old, eternal and temporal, corruptible and incorruptible, mortal and immortal in this fashion, it is old insofar as it concerns the law, but new insofar as it concerns the gospel. Temporal insofar as it concerns the type. Eternal because of grace. Corruptible because of the sacrifice of the sheep. Incorruptible because of the life of the Lord. Mortal because of his burial in the earth. Immortal because of his resurrection from the dead. And then he's kind of off to the races from here, and and Melito really begins his consideration of this mystery of Passover with a pretty thorough, and I found very biblically faithful survey of the Passover, which God used to bring... Israel out of slavery in Egypt, which is really, again, a remarkable thing that I find consistently among the early church fathers is how well they knew their Hebrew Bible and how steeped they were in the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish stories. So Melito starts with the Passover that led Israel out of Egypt, and then he connects the Passover to the person and the work of Christ. In section 2, Melito's examining Israel's role in the death of Christ. And here we get to some of the controversial areas. So Shea Cohen, again, if you haven't heard previous uh, uh, episodes, Shea Cohen is, is a Jewish scholar that we're looking at quite a bit among a number of Jewish scholars that we're, um, that we're referring to. And he gives us a Jewish perspective on Melito's writing here. He says this, quote, "For Melito, Christ, the slaughtered Paschal Lamb, is also God and Lord. Melito draws the logical conclusion. The Jews, whom Melito calls Israel, have murdered God, with the result that Israel itself now, quote, lies dead, close quote, rejected by God. So that's Cohen's perspective, and so in looking through on the Pasha, I I think I found the passage that, that Cohen seems to be referring to in his comments there, and that passage is this. Let me read it. It's just a paragraph. Quote, "'Why was it like this, O Israel? You did not tremble for the Lord. You did not fear for the Lord. You did not lament for the Lord. Yet you lamented for your firstborn. You did not tear your garments at the crucifixion of the Lord.' Yet you tore your garments for your own who were murdered. You forsook your Lord. You were not found by him. You dashed the Lord to the ground. You too were dashed to the ground and lie quite dead. Now, we're about to dive into the disagreement here between Shea uh, Cohen and between the Jews and the Christians and and that sort of thing. And and before we do that, and we're going to just kind of take an academic, scholarly look at that, um, I don't want to seem insensitive. And so I would refer you back, if you haven't heard them, to especially the very first episode of this miniseries, where we really kind of laid the groundwork for the proper context uh, in which we should be interpreting these conversations between Jews and Christians, and especially those points of disagreement. So just wanted to refer you back to that before uh, we dive in. So looking at what we have here, the question now becomes— who does Melito have in mind when he refers to quote Israel? So uh, as a quarter deciman I just mentioned um he Melito honored the Jewish calendar so it's it's hard to imagine that he would be promoting anti-Jewishness through this uh, section, this passage where he's talking about Israel being dead. Um, and in fact, another scholar, Dr. Todd Hannikin, comments on this. He finds Melito, quote, closer to the prophets and sages than modern anti-Judaism. Melito identifies himself within the same tradition as those he criticizes, and he calls them to repentance with compassion. So Hanakin's really saying that, hey, we need to take Melito's criticism of Judaism in context— uh, and he mentions two things. First, that Melito identifies himself with the Jewish calendar, the Jewish tradition, and also that in the larger work of the on the Pasha writing, the sermon, Melito's really calling the Jews to repentance with compassion. He's not just hammering them for no reason. Now, Shay Cohen happens to disagree with that. He says this, quote, "'Even though, or perhaps because the practice of the quarter decimans is close to Jewish usage,' They were hardly close to Jews or Judaism, as Melito's invective shows. Okay, so let me take a little sidebar here, and we need to kind of talk about what actually constitutes an anti Jewish position if we look at this from the perspective of the Jews who view the Jewish faith as integral to their very identity, it's entirely understandable from that perspective that they would feel offended, you know, personally attacked when their theology is challenged. And and I think we have to grant that throughout history, some Christians have, in fact, treated some Jews horribly. You know, the oppression and the persecution of Jews, or really any other people, but We certainly have to categorically denounce that as wrong and unchristian. There is no place for a Christian, and there is no teaching in the New Testament, and certainly not from Jesus, that would support this activity of oppressing or persecuting anybody, uh, especially not the Jews. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So how much more should we love and serve our Jewish brothers and sisters? Now let me point you back to the New Testament baseline. We had created that five-point baseline out of the New Testament, explaining to us how we are being taught as Christians to regard the Jewish people and Jewish theology. And so what we learned in that framework, that baseline, was that Christians are not and should not be opposed to the Jewish people. Instead, we are to recognize their central role in God's history and to earnestly desire their salvation. And at the same time, Christ followers have to reject any theology that denies Christ, right? I mean, and that's a hard teaching for some to stomach. It, it can fly in the face of you know modern views on tolerance and inclusion, but this is the position requir- that, that's required of us by Jesus himself, and, and it's why, from a Christian perspective— rejecting Judaism's denial of Christ and, and urging our Jewish brothers and sisters to repent and place their faith in Jesus is actually pro-Jewish. It honors the true Hebrew roots of the Christian faith, and it flows from a desire for the eternal salvation of the Jewish people out of a desire to preach the gospel, to preach salvation to our Jewish brothers and sisters. So re- returning to Melito here, you know what should we make of this line where the author tells Israel quote "You too were dashed to the ground and lie quite dead and again i I would agree with Hanakin that, as a keeper of the Jewish calendar, uh, at least regarding Passover, you know Melito is not likely suggesting here that all Jews are dead, you are know, cut off from God, you know, so he may be hinting at a link between the Jewish leader's forsaking of Christ and the scattering of their nation in A.D. 70, which would have been about a century earlier. However, you know, based on the text that follows, I think the author's proclamation that Israel now lies, quote, quite dead, close quote, to me that seems to be more likely a reference to unbelieving Jews being dead in their sin because they've rejected Christ. And this brings to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 21, verses 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, and here Jesus is referring referring to himself as the cornerstone, the stumbling stone, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Seems more likely to be a reference to unbelieving Jews being dead in their sin because they have rejected Christ. I say that because, again, of the larger context. Melito, um, he actually closes this letter, or this sermon on the Pasha by declaring the final triumph of Christ who, quote, gave the dead man life, close quote, by bringing forgiveness and salvation to all the families of the earth, and I believe we can reasonably assume here that his use of this universal term "all, uh, all families of the earth" includes the Jews. Matter of fact, because of his deep knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, I'm certain that what he's thinking of is uh, Genesis 12:3 where God promises to through Abraham that he would bless, again, all the families of the earth. So let me share another little passage here. So Melito writes that Jesus, quote, "...rose up from the dead and cried aloud with this voice, Who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed." and then skipping down a little bit. Therefore, come all families of men, you who have been befouled with sins and receive forgiveness for your sins. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven, and I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up. By my right hand. You could just imagine those words in the mouth of a, of a brilliant orator, which of course I am not, but just really being an inspirational close to a very powerful Easter sermon. And again, I, I think in this Easter sermon overall, Melito's offering a biblically faithful retelling of the Passover and he just does a, a I think a brilliant job of tying it, to Christ's sacrifice, as in John 1, 29, we read, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, you know, while his description of Israel's role in the death of Jesus might be seen as offensive from a Jewish perspective, as Christians, we have to admit it's not unbiblical. It's, it echoes what we hear the uh, the apostles. Again, I'll, I'll point us back to Peter's sermon on Pentecost it's echoing that same concept that the Jews were culpable in the death of Jesus. But it does not necessarily mean, and I think Melito's clear here, it doesn't indicate that that because of that, the Jews are now cut off or scorned from God. Uh, Certainly, Paul in Romans um, 11, especially, guarantees that that is not the case. God has not rejected the Jews. So, Now, I didn't find Melito's prose any more anti-Jewish than the New Testament, which, as we've previously established, is a collection of documents written to Jews by Jews about the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so let's jump ahead into the third century now and take a look at Cyprian. Now, Cyprian lived from 210 till 285. He was born in North Africa. Um, He became a bishop in the year 249, and really he remained a controversial figure during his lifetime. He was known for his uh, exceptional pastoral skills, he was an accomplished Latin rhetoric, um, and he was considered one of the foremost Latin writers of Western Christianity. And among his many writings, Cyprian had authored a uh, a treatise dated around 250 called Two Quirinius, Testimonies Against the Jews, which he delivered in three books— Now, the scholar Claudio Moroschini explains that this work, quote, was requested by a friend who wanted a compendium of the church's teaching on Judaism and on the relationship and opposition between Judaism and Christianity. And this, of course, is exactly what we're looking for here in these early church writings. We want to understand Uh, what was going on? What were the Jews and the Christians? How were they dealing with each other? How were they relating to one another? And how was Judaism and Christianity beginning to diverge or to split off? So I was excited to stumble across this one. And and this is a writing that came about a century after Justin and Melita, which we just looked at. So it's nice to jump down the road a little bit and and check in and see how things are doing. So again, this is a three-book work. And in book one, Cyprian's really making this copious use of texts from the Old and the New Testaments to lay out his case. Um, and so what he's got is kind of 26 different sections, and and really we can gather the nature and the flow of his argument by even just reading through the 26 headlines. Now, I'm not going to read through all of them right here. Again, you can find them in my book, Divergence, but um, I'll read through a few of them to give you the flavor, and then we're going to dial in on a couple of them that seem to be perhaps the most offensive or the most combative towards Jews at the time. So here are a few of them. Section one, that the Jews have fallen under the heavy wrath of God because they have departed from the Lord and have followed idols. And again, this is just the headline. Each headline would be followed by Cyprian's arguments, the, the things that he had collected, uh, the writings and the, and the teachings that he had collected um, from his era. So that was the first headline. Second headline, also because they did not believe the prophets and put them to death. Section three, that it was previously foretold that they would neither know the Lord nor understand nor receive him. Section four, that the Jews would not understand the holy scriptures, but that they would be intelligible in the last times after Christ had come. Section five, that the Jews could understand nothing of the scriptures unless they first believed on Christ. So you're getting the idea here. Let me skip down a little bit. Section eight that the first circumcision of the flesh was made void and a second circumcision of the spirit was promised instead. Number nine, that the former law given by Moses was about to cease. Section 10, that a new law was to be given. And again, he'll, he'll, under each section, he'll trace out the arguments. He'll often quote quite generously from the Old Testament to kind of build his case. Skipping down a bit, section 15, that Christ should be God's house and temple and that the old temple should pass away. Uh, Section 17, that the old sacrifice should be made void and a new one should be celebrated. Section 18, that the old priesthood should cease and a new priest should come who should be forever. Uh, Skip you down and then okay, the last one, 26 here. Section 26, the headline says that by this alone the Jews could obtain pardon of their sins. If they wash away the blood of Christ, slain in his baptism, and passing over into the church, should obey his precepts. There again in the last section, we see Cyprian holding out the possibility, and, and, I th- and if we read that section, kind of promoting the hope that the Jews would come to faith in Christ. He, again, he's not showing them as rejected by God or cut off or anything like that, but he's also not saying, he's also not downplaying the Jewish theology that rejects Christ. So for the most part, Cyprian's argument appears to follow the contours of our our five-point biblical framework that we established earlier. He he acknowledges Israel's central role in God's story, along with the failure of her leaders. Uh, He rejects their denial of Christ, and in the end, he holds out hope for their salvation. However, some of Cyprian's ideas can appear troublesome. For example, sections 4 and 5 suggest that the Jews could not understand Scripture except through Christ. And this premise, I think, feels anti-jewish at first glance, certainly, but it turns out to be well supported in Scripture. Among other passages in this section, Cyprian cites the Apostle Paul's teaching to the church at Corinth concerning the Israelites. He says this, second Corinthians 3:14 through16. It says, "But there, speaking of the Jews, the Israelites, "...but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." And that clearly seems to be the biblical source for the argument that Cyprian's making in those two sections. And then there's Section 7 here, which also seems troublesome at first glance. The headline for Section 7 says this, that they would also lose the light of the Lord. However, again, as we read through this section, we find that Cyprian's argument is related actually to the denial of Christ, which, as we looked at earlier, is spoken out quite strongly by Jesus and Paul and others. And actually, in this section, Cyprian is citing the Apostle John to support his point. Uh, he's citing John 3, 18 and 19, which say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And then in other sections, we see Cyprian kind of falling prey to this common um, tendency among early Christian thinkers to overreach when they're reading prophecy and allegory into scripture. Cyprian certainly was no exception. So, on that basis, there are certain points that he's making that we could challenge. For example, uh, Section 20, the headline for that section, the argument he's making there is, quote, "...that two peoples were foretold, the elder and the younger, that is, the old people of the Jews, and the new one, which should consist of us." Referring, of course, to Christians. So Cyprian comes to this conclusion based, at least in part, on God's pronouncement to Rebecca in Genesis. So Genesis 25-23 says... Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now, Cyprian's conclusion that this passage is a prophecy about Jews and Christians, it just doesn't seem warranted at all in the context of Genesis 25, and and obviously in hindsight... From a historical perspective, it doesn't hold true at all. Christians aren't of a different lineage than Jews. In fact, Christianity isn't about who we came from, but rather who we believe in. And for that reason, I I think we should just prefer the plain meaning of this passage in Genesis, namely that. That Rebecca will have twins, and each will be the progenitor of a nation, and and more than that, that the Jewish family line of Abraham will continue through Jacob, the younger brother, rather than Esau. So I think what we're seeing here is God's sovereignty and God's predestination for Israel, and of course, subsequently for Christians. And we see something similar in section 25, which is headlined that rather the Gentiles than the Jews should attain to the kingdom of heaven. Now, in support of this point, Cyprian simply gives us a passage from Matthew, Matthew 8:11 through 12, and it says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." So again, as we kind of dive into this, Cyprian seems to be interpreting Christ's words in this passage here in a in a decidedly anti-Jewish manner. He seems to be suggesting that Jews cannot be believers in Christ and therefore cannot be saved. However, we need to keep reading because in section twenty-six we get some clarity. Section twenty-six, I read that earlier. That's the last of these sections in book one, and, and the headline for that is that by this alone the Jews can receive pardon for their sins. "...if they wash away the blood of Christ slain in his baptism and, passing over into his church, obey his precepts." So, in other words, salvation is available to the Jewish people through faith, faith in Christ. And consequently, if we take this all in context, section 25 is perhaps better interpreted or a better headline might be, "...believers in Christ will attain to the kingdom of heaven, but not religious Jews who reject Christ." And we can't argue, um, if we accept that sort of a connotation, that that Cyprian's final two points in book one really do have a biblical basis. They actually echo the words of Peter and John before the council in Jerusalem in Acts 4.12. It says this, "...and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." And, of course, they also echo the words of Jesus to his disciple Thomas in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. So while from the Jewish perspective it can be offensive, or actually from any non-Christian perspective, it can be offensive for someone to to boldly state the only way to salvation is Christ. And yet, that is the truth of our faith. That's what our Lord taught us. (laughs) Now, book two of this testimony against the Jews, it doesn't actually discuss the Jews in very much depth. It's, it's essentially just a, a detailed um, and I think remarkably accurate Christology that, again, it's supported by abundant amounts of scripture. It reveals Jesus as, as divine and as the promised Jewish Messiah, and the book further proclaims Christ as what we just looked at as the only way to salvation. And it teaches that, He will one day come as a judge and a king to reign forever. Um, So, not much to deal with there, other than there are two sections here in Book Two that contain possible points of offense concerning the concerning the Jews. So, Section Fourteen is headlined that he was the righteous one whom the Jews should put to death. And so here Cyprian's quoting from several places. He's quoting from Isaiah 57, uh, Exodus 23, Matthew 27, and he's actually also quoting from the apocryphal book of Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. And what he's arguing is that the Messiah's death at the hands of the Jews was foretold. Now, personally, I found Cyprian's cited passages a, a bit debatable, uh, in support of his point, but his point itself, I believe, is valid and, and biblical. Um, the assertion that Jesus was rejected by his own people certainly is validated. And, and what I would point to, I think, as better scriptural support would be Mark six one through six, or Luke four twenty eight through thirty, or John five forty three and the culpability of the Jews in the death of Christ which we've looked at is addressed in Matthew 27:25 in Luke 23:18 and Acts 2:14 through 36. So in this case I think Cyprian's claims weren't in error or unbiblical I just think they were maybe poorly supported. Now book 2 section 20 which is essentially a reiteration of section 14 has this headline that the Jews should fasten him to the cross. Now, here in this section, Cyprian's not alleging that the Jews physically fastened Christ to the cross, but rather that it was foretold that they would be guilty of his death. And again, he, he builds a very biblical case. He's quoting from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Numbers, Habakkuk, Zechariah. Um, and he really is outlining what he sees as a, a prophetic foretelling of the cross in the Hebrew Bible. And then he closes this section by quoting Jesus from John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him May have eternal life. So again, he's really building this very biblically supported case for the Christian faith. And then, ironically, in book three of Testimonies Against the Jews, Cyprian doesn't even discuss the Jews. He actually describes the contents of this third book as, quote, a succinct course of sacred reading for the religious teaching of our school. Certain precepts of the Lord and divine teachings, which may be easy and useful to the readers, in that a few things digested into a short space are both quickly read through and are frequently repeated. So this third book really, it contains 120 short passages of either scripture or of teachings. Uh, it's things like, on the benefit of good works and mercy, or that brethren ought to sustain one another, or that evil is not to be returned for evil. But none of the passages here in Book 3 actually speak to Jewish-Christian relations. Okay, so that wraps up episode eight and really wraps up all of the early Christian writings that we're going to dive into in detail. As I mentioned early on, uh, I did look at quite a bit. I probably looked at 20 times the amount of material that we've actually gone through. Much of it really doesn't have anything directly to speak to Jewish-Christian relations, but the things that we did look through were the most let's say, obvious, the most direct, the most, depending on your perspective, the most egregious discussions regarding the Jewish-Christian relations. So next episode, what we're going to do is summarize all that. We're going to take a look through all of the writings that we've looked at. We're going to compare them to our five-point biblical framework, and we're also going to take a look at, specifically, our two theological markers, which are, again, they are the Sabbath versus the Lord's Day, so the last day of the week, versus the first day of the week. And then we're gonna look at Passover versus Easter, which obviously with Melito here in this episode, we got some pretty good um, data that we can look at on that particular topic. So we're gonna spend our next episode, episode nine, putting together a summary of these early Christian writings. And after that, we will then move to the final stage, stage three, and take a look at the Council of Nicaea and what was the state of Christendom in terms of their theology and in terms of their posture or their attitude towards the Jewish people at the close of the Council of Nicaea in 325. So thank you again so much for listening. For more information, as always, you can check out DivergenceBook.com or my personal website, RLSolberg.com, and we will catch you on the next episode. Shalom.